Now for our second message, be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, God's Impartiality and the Royal Law. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on God's beautiful Sabbath day. I want to, again, publicly thank Steve. Last week I was supposed to speak, and I wasn't feeling well, and the whole family kind of followed suit throughout the week. Uh, but I think we're all on the mend now, so, uh, and, and this is going around this time of year, so a lot of people ill that we probably all know of, and so keep those people in our prayers uh, as we uh, try to fight this illness season that seems to kind of be overtaking many, many different people, many households. Uh, in Micah, you guys remember what the book of Micah is, Micah's a prophet, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. In Micah, the sixth chapter, verse 8, we read these words from the prophet. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I've always really liked this passage because it's so simple, but yet so powerful. And obviously, we come at it from a Christian perspective, and we understand that you could probably spend years on that passage, and you could spend lifetimes to try to perfect this lifestyle that you're being asked to live, and probably still wouldn't perfect it, because we're all imperfect, we're human beings, and we're not spirit beings yet, uh, but we know that Christ, He did that for us, and we strive to be that perfect individual as Christ was. But it seems that in our culture, the word justice has been used in a combination or used in combination with a host of movements. And so, I mean, it's, it's hard to get away from it now, right? You know, we, we, we read in the news, we see social media, and that word justice pops up so often. And everybody has like a different idea of what justice is. And so, you know, some of the terms I just threw on here, you could probably add a hundred others. You know, we've all heard the word social justice. And social justice means one thing to one person and something else to another. And social justice kind of is more general. It captures so many of the other, you know, justice movements like economic justice, which is included in social justice, or racial justice, or political justice. And what has seemed to abound is a lot of division. I think that we would all agree. I mean, there's, it's kind of hard to deny that there's a lot of Division and tolerance and fighting from all sides in our culture and in our world, in particular our country today. For some, the word justice has lost its meaning or value because of this. Now, justice is a big theme throughout the scriptures. God wants us to be just human beings. He wants to be just us to be just followers because He is a perfect and just God. Because... And just for some, word, uh, for some, the word justice has lost its meaning or value because it's attached to so many different ideas. And the weeds of all of this, many have seemed to have lost all of their civility, and we seem to be a sort of, in a, a sort of cultural or social civil war. Now, unfortunately, we can see this in our politics, we can see this on social media. And we can see that 
Even Christians have gotten wrapped up in this. And thinking about some of the things this past week, of this idea of social justice, and this idea of just the word justice in general, I knew that I wanted to come and talk a little bit about our conduct with each other as brethren, as well as our conduct toward our fellow man. Because that's really important, how we treat our fellow man. I decided to look at a string of passages that I've looked at before in the epistle of James. So let's go to James, the second chapter. And I have two points today that I want to bring us. Two points. The first one is I want us to see and treat people as God sees them, not how the world does. The second point is I want us to set our eyes on God's royal law and to live by it. So let's go to James, the second chapter. And we're going to pick it up in verses 1 through 13. James, the second chapter. He says this in the second chapter of James. And I've, a few years ago, if you weren't here, I gave a series on the book of James, or the epistle of James, ten different sermons, and I entitled that series, The Ethics of Faith. And so I, I came back to these, these passages, because there's, there's, there's some things there that I didn't touch upon when I went over these passages whenever I did that series that I want to, I, I, I think there's some spiritual principles and we could all agree that we can look at different parts of the Bible and we can study it and we can preach on it and we can't maybe get every single bit out of it in just one message. And so I came back to this throughout this week and was thinking about it and I was working and I came back to this idea of Impart or partiality, you know, playing favorites. And there's some things that motivated me to get there, and we'll, we'll get into that. But I want to just open up by reading 1 through 13. James says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, verse 5. My beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man... Do not the rich oppress, and oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as, as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, so do as those who will, do, uh, who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we can all agree that all of us have been afforded a lot of mercy from our God in heaven, from our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So my first main point, see and treat people as God sees them, not how the world does. And it seems that in the context of what was going on with the readers that James had in mind, which were highly, you know, you could say that this letter was written to a mix of people, but probably a lot of Jewish believers, people that understood different Jewish customs and things like that. And one way that we treat people as God, uh, we see and treat people as God sees them and treats them, and not as, as how the world does, is simply doing what James says. Don't be partial. Do not be partial or play favorites. Now, we're going to get to this in many different ways because I think there's some subtle ways that we can be partial in this life that isn't necessarily right here in the text, but we can extrapolate that from the principles that James has given us. Now, all of us know what it means to be partial. Okay? You know, we're partial to a particular kind of music. You know, maybe you like country western. And someone else might like, you know, rock and roll or classic rock. Maybe you like Italian food and you don't like Mexican food. And so when it comes to deciding what the best food is, you're partial because your favorite is Italian food. Same thing goes with TV shows, types of movies. Me and my wife, we do not like the same kind of movies. We never hardly ever agree upon what we want to see unless it's something. I mean, every now and then it happens, but not very often. We're both partial towards one type of movie versus the other. But God warns us about playing favorites with human beings. And this is very basic stuff. But the problem with it is, is that even though it's basic, it goes on all the time, even among Bible-believing Christians. Now, all of us have probably experienced people being partial to us. Maybe in a good way. And what I mean by that, in a positive way, if someone's favoring us or shows us partiality in a good way over someone else, or vice versa. They favor someone else. Maybe this is at work. Maybe you feel like someone's done this, and it really doesn't feel very good. It kind of makes you feel belittled or undervalued. But the term here in the Greek is a descriptive term that literally means receiving someone according to their face. And it has all to do with appearance. You have judged someone based upon how they look. They come in, gold rings, fine apparel. Someone else comes in, filthy clothes. Obviously, not of the same status as the other person. And you are favoring that person. You're saying, hey, sit here in this seat, this fine seat. The best seat in the house. And the other person, you're kind of like, you go over there and sit, you know, where the, the peasants sit, so to speak. Now, this term is rooted and many different Old Testament passages throughout the Old Testament. This idea of being partial. I mean, we can go, and I didn't give Brian these passages, but Psalm 82 verse 2 says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? We see so many passages throughout the Psalms that talk about judges being partial, in particular to the wealthy, because they're somehow sometimes getting a kickback. They're getting favor. Maybe it's a wealth kickback. They're getting paid. Or, hey, I'm going to let this person off the hook and judge un, you know, basically judge unjustly because later I might be in a bind and because this wealthy person is important, they might help me out. Proverbs 18.5, It is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. And this went on all over Israel in the Old Testament times. And this is one of the things. I mean, obviously, the Israelites 
rejected God's law, but they also rejected justice by showing partiality towards the wealthy at the expense of those who are impoverished. Speaking to the Levite priesthood of Malachi, the second chapter, verse 9, he says, Therefore I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. The Levitical priesthood. They were blessed and given the job and the role to oversee God's law in the priesthood, in, in, in the tabernacle, or the temple later. And as Israel's history goes on, they start turning away from it, acting like they're doing the right thing, but they start being partial in the way that they would interpret the law. At the expense, on almost every one of these contexts, when you read it, it's, it whether it's the has to do with it, people like judges being impartial or the priest, their ruling or judgment was not to uphold justice or the true intent of God's law, but rather to favor the wicked, often being influenced by that wicked's wealth. Things have not changed much in our current culture. And we can think of many ideas. I don't have one in particular that I'm thinking about. But we do see people who break laws that are of some sort of status, wealth, notoriety, friends with the right people, and we see their sentence. And then we see the same thing happen with someone else that is a nobody, or usually we don't because we don't hear about them, right? But we might hear about them because maybe it's a relative of somebody, and we hear about it through the grapevine, and we hear that they basically did the same exact thing as someone that we saw maybe on the news. And their sentence is so much, so much bigger. And it seems like they're afforded those who are the wealthy, the, 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 the ones who are of power or have notoriety, they're afforded much more leeway than those who hold a more humble or average status. Now I want us to think about something because there's something in the passage here that James says when he says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now I think this is important to note because I think that James is getting at something that we all know about, but sometimes it's easy to just read over that and say, yeah, the Lord of glory, but maybe not try to really get at what James is referring to. The Lord of glory. There's an interesting discussion that has taken place as to just how we are to take this idea of the Lord of glory and how it should be interpreted. Jesus being referred to the Lord of glory, in many people's ears, in, in James's audience that are listening or reading or having it read to them, this letter, might have come and been reminded to this idea called the Shekinah. Maybe you've heard of it before in the Old Testament, God's Shekinah glory, basically his presence. It's a term that was used by Jews or coined by Jews to refer to God's presence, especially in, regard, in regards to God's physical presence in the wilderness with Israel. We know the stories. God was physically and you could see the manifestation of God with the Israelites in the wilderness. Even into all the way to the point where we see the temple being built and the temple is established and it's consecrated. 
So, when we turn to the New Testament, though, the first chapter of John is devoted to an idea that transfers the idea of the Shekinah, the presence of God, as we find in the Old Testament, to the one that we know now as our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, what's interesting is, is that there's a little history. Because we know the history of the Shekinah glory, the glory, the, the physical manifestation of the presence of God and the, and the pillar uh, uh, of smoke and, and the fire and, and, and the cloud by day all the way to when Moses actually sees the glory of God or at least God masks his glory to the point where he could physically be able to withstand it. Seeing kind of the outline of his back. We see that that happens and then Israel goes into the promised land and then eventually a temple's erected and a temple's consecrated and God's glory comes in that. But we come to the end of the Old Testament, or, or as the Old Testament goes on, we see that the way that God is manifested is a little different. Because we see that people now, God has chosen prophets to speak his word through. And so the Old Testament ends, and there's this idea of like, okay, there's no prophet anymore. And we've heard the stories, we've heard of all these things, but there's no prophet anymore. And then we come to the New Testament. Let's go to John, the first chapter. We've read this so many times. Some people call this the first 18 passages in John 1, the prologue or the introduction. Like it's this, it's this poetic writing of John describing the coming of Jesus in a different way. We see that Mark, Matthew, Luke, they start with, you know, Matthew and Luke starts with the, you know, Jesus' very early days being born. Mark starts with Jesus' ministry. But John is totally different. He goes way back and he begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Kind of harkening back to what Reggie was talking about, about the darkness, and about how we have this principality, you know, prince of the air, this prince of this world, that wants this world to be robbed of this light that's came into the world. But what is interesting is, is if you skip down to verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, we saw, we looked upon, what it means, his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John is doing two things. First, we know that the wording here from John 1.1 1, 1 in the beginning harkens back to the Genesis account, to when God created the earth. And he introduces this logos this Greek word, that's what the word means in, in Greek, is the logos. And he talks about this logos coming flesh. And not only is John giving a testimony to the incarnation of this logos, this logos taking on human flesh, this logos that was eternal, this logos that was with God from the very beginning and was God, that we know of as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But he also talks a little bit about this idea of dwelt in glory. And he uses dwelt in glory, which is interesting because the Greek word dwelt, the verb, is eskaneo. 
And people reading this passage in the early days of the New Testament would have automatically, because this word, you know, means pitch a tent, to dwell temporarily. Sometimes translations call it, he tabernacled among us. And it means similar things to what that Shekinah glory was all about. This phrase, coupled with the words of glory, is directly related to the tabernacle where God dwelt among Israel in the wilderness. This Shekinah glory that was in the Old Testament, that God physically dwelt among the Israelites via the tabernacle, is now going to come to us in the form of Jesus Christ. We beheld the, new, the Shekinah glory has now come via this individual that we know as Jesus Christ. And so the Lord of glory is who we have faith in. And we know what He did. And so we have to ask the question, how did Jesus act and how did He talk? How did He teach? Did He teach with impartiality? Did, I mean, How did He treat people that the common culture despised or disregarded. We're going to look at two examples. Two examples of two groups of people that people despised and completely discounted in the New Testament, New Testament age. Let's go to Luke, the 18th chapter. Luke 18. This is the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus says, or uh, Luke opens up, also he spoke this parable to some who trust in themselves. This is in verse 9. Excuse me, I didn't mention that. Verse 9 of Luke 18. He says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you were in Jesus' audience, this would have been kind of a slap in the face. The Pharisees, the most righteous people that follow the law the most meticulous way that you can imagine, not only that, but they've even added other laws on top of that to make sure that they don't break the other law, the, the written law. They fast twice a week, a tradition in Pharisaic Judaism. And now Jesus is given the story where really the humbler one, the humbled one, the tax collector, is the one that's going to be justified because of his humility. And the reason I'm bringing this out is because this breaks a huge norm in the culture of Jesus' day. Everyone else raised and taught to not be able to stand. That One of the ultimate enemies is the tax collector. And one of the reasons is because many times these tax collectors had, were Jewish. And they would basically kind of be tre treacherous. They'd be traitors. And they would get hired by the Roman Empire to collect taxes. 
and they would add on top of those taxes some interest so they could take a little off the top. And so they were being extortionists to their own brethren, their own kinsmen. Let's go to Luke, the 10th chapter, and read another parable. Another hated group within the common days of Jesus among Jewish people. The Good Samaritan. We've all read this before. We could spend days on this one. But in verse 25 of Luke 10, we read, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What, are, what is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And we'll get to that in just a minute when we talk about the royal law. But verse 28, he says, And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who's my neighbor? He say, Love my neighbor as myself. Well, who's that? And so Jesus answers him by putting this person that I'm sure that this lawyer didn't expect. In verse, 29, or verse 30, he says, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when they, he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out the denarii and gave him to the innkeeper and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he, had, he who showed mercy on him. And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now this would have been another slap in the face. You got a Levite, right? You got all these individuals uh, that uh, would have been guessed to be better than the Samaritan, the ones that Jews despised and despised. And just kind of give you a background why Jews despise the Samaritans. There's a little history here. Uh, Samaritans were thought of as being Israelites back in the first. Uh, when the Assyrians came in and took over the northern tribes, what they would do is, is that they wouldn't displace every single person. They would displace probably a large percentage of those who were Israelite, but they would keep some there, and they would take some other people that they had from another land that they had conquered and put those people there, and those people would intermingle, intermarriage and things like that, reproduce. And so these Samaritans were looked at as basically being remnants of the old ten tribes in the north that had intermarried and had offspring basically from part Israelite and obviously part Gentile nations. And throughout time, there became this animosity. In fact, there's stories about how they would you know, not go through Samaria and they would avoid it altogether. There was an animosity between them. 
And so we see an example of how Jesus is cutting to the core of you know, basic cultural perceptions of his day. But getting back to James's illustration, the literal illustration at hand, in James' scenario, he brings out a situation where one particular guest has arrived to an assembly, to a meeting, and this guest, fine clothing, he has a gold ring on his finger. This is actually a symbol of someone who is from the high Roman uh, equestrian class. You know, ones that are typically a part of those who set in judgment of those who are of less status. And they give that person the high seat. They, they show favoritism towards that person. In essence, James' condemnation is on how they allow themselves to be influenced by the cultural norms of their world. Because I think, and I'm ringing a bell, I, I can't prove this, I think that just from my own experiences, seeing people, I see sometimes people do this, not because they necessarily want to, because they just are in awe of those people that are maybe wealthy or have notoriety or a person who they think is important, but it's because they're going to get some gain from it. They're going to get something on the flip side. You know, maybe you're working a job and there's someone that's really important or somebody you think is really important and you, you, you treat them a certain way because you think that, well, if I do that, I suck up to them. And maybe it's a boss and obviously we should show respect to those who are our supervisors and things like that, but they're going to get something on the backside. Something is obviously, the, these two things, these things that James is bringing out, this impartiality issue is something that Jesus taught against as we saw in those two parables that we just read. And there's many more examples than that. Now, I think we can extend this. And the reason I brought this out is because it's the immediate context. I mean, the literal context is people showing favoritism within a church assembly or within church or within just circles to people of wealthy status. People who are of, you know, better off economically. And I think that a lot of us probably don't have this temptation per se. Maybe we don't have the temptation to show partiality towards someone who is wealthy or famous or something like that. But I think we all as individuals are prone to show partiality in maybe other ways. And in fact, even though this passage is not about showing partiality or is about showing partiality based upon economic statuses of people, I think we can extend this principle to how we might, as individuals, sometimes show partiality to other people in different areas. All of us, as individuals, we grow up, we have different experiences, we have different mothers and fathers or people who raise us that give us maybe some of our biases, that give us maybe some of our inclinations, sometimes good and sometimes bad. All of us, though, in our own personal lives, in our own minds, can probably think that, you know what, we all have a Samaritan in our life or a tax collector in our life, someone that we kind of inwardly maybe despise or we, just, we don't really care for. We all have a partiality towards something. And I kind of wanted to get at this because... If we just take James's analogy of showing partiality and how wrong that is towards someone of economic status, I think that it's true 
that that same principle can be extended to other aspects of life, other areas that we might be partial to people. Maybe it is fame. Maybe it is wealth and fame. Maybe we do sometimes again in our society and in our personal, you know, uh, uh, lives when we intermingle with people, we show partiality to people that maybe drive nice cars, live in big houses, things like that. But maybe it's other areas. Maybe, what about nationality? Does our patriotism sometimes stir up in us favoritism? And of course, there's nothing wrong with being patriotic, loving your country, feeling blessed that you live in a free country that has a democratic process, that has been blessed beyond measure. Nothing wrong with that. But in the current climate that we live in, sometimes I think that can it go so far that because of patriotism and the issues that we see going on, and I'm not a fan of talking about politics behind the pulpit, and I'm not trying to do that in any way, shape, or form, but I think that we can't get away from seeing what's happening in our world and not addressing it from a biblical perspective, addressing issues that might affect our conduct, that might prohibit us from maybe walking as Christ would walk. How about race? Obviously and sadly, this is something that still exists. Now this has nothing to do with you know, the social justice stuff. This is just plain basic ethics of the Bible. We know that racism exists and we know that it's wrong. We know that it's something that is horrible and, it, and it's, it's, it's basically looking upon a part of God's creation, fellow human beings, and thinking that they're less than. How about gender? Maybe gender is our Samaritan or tax collector. I'm talking about subtle, nonce things in our lives. Or we maybe sometimes have to think to ourselves, obviously this has nothing to do with roles of genders. We all probably believe that each gender, you know, there's two genders, okay, there's male and female, and they have different roles, and God has created us equal but different. Thank God that he did, right? Equal but different, but still, both are nothing but of Christ. Both are equal under Christ. Equal but different. Political affiliation, this is a big one. Political affiliation. You know, you meet someone, oh, well, they're, they're from the other party. I don't know if they're going to know as much as I think they should know. I'm not going to really listen to them. Do we show favoritism inwardly or partiality inwardly? Now, that doesn't mean that we can't hold our convictions. doesn't mean that we can't believe what we believe and say, I don't agree with their worldview politically. But do we still love them as Christ loved us? We still love them and show impartiality like God did to us despite us being in the wrong. And all of us were in the wrong as sinners worthy of death. But because of the blood of Christ, we were saved. Dress. Another one, I don't mean dresses, but the way people, the clothing they wear. If someone comes in, has tattoos down their arms, do we look at them and say, they're probably you know, not as righteous as me? Those are things that we have to think about because 
Obviously, we can have an opinion about maybe what we would do, and maybe if that's appropriate or things like that. That's fine. But does it get in the way of us looking at them as fellow human beings, as fellow brethren sometimes? Parenting style. Parenting style is another one. This is probably something I'm biased with because I'm not biased, but it, it, it's, it's something that I've seen being a father of young children uh, and knowing different parents that are around the same age, you know, and just seeing, you know, reading things about parenting. And then, of course, a lot of times, unfortunately, when you read things about parenting, you do what we all do right now, go to social media and kind of look at maybe, maybe there's different groups or things like that. And you see the comments about how people will be critical of, you know, different parenting styles. And, of course, there's no criticism from me about parenting styles because I'm no one to criticize parenting in any way, shape, or form. Because I can tell you, there's many things I could write down that I probably have not done the best at in my own parenting style. But just seeing this in our culture. And people fight, you know, should you do this or should you do that? Okay, do they sleep in the crib till one or should you move them to a bed? I mean, all of the, you can, you can just imagine. It's endless on how critical people can be. And in turn, we see people set up in their lives, perceiving people in a negative way. And sometimes it can creep in. It can become deep-seated hatred that's built up within us. Even religion, people we don't see eye to eye regarding religious doctrine. Let's face it, we have probably all of us, if we go to work or go out and, you know, in the world, which we all do, probably come into contact with people that we don't see eye to eye on religiously on every aspect. It's just a fact of the matter. But we have seen this even with our own church tradition, the Church of God tradition. People we just perceive as different. And I'm going to give you an illustration. I saw something. There was a video this week. Maybe you saw it too. I can't remember where it was. I think maybe my wife sent it to me. But there was this 9 or 10 year old Australian boy. And unfortunately it was an Australian boy that had a disability. And, and I don't mean that. I, I, maybe I should rephrase that. Maybe it's not a disability. But he has a form of what's known as dwarfism. And this kid was begging to die uh, because the way people were treating him at school. And it, it was just heartbreaking. Uh, and, and I don't usually get emotional about stuff, but I mean, just seeing just the, the pain on this kid's face, it was hard. And it's just, it was difficult to watch. And it, it just made me think of this message because it just made me think about how easy it is for us to create in us uh, disdain for, for things, for people. Uh, uh, and how at an early age this can happen. And so it just, it was shocking. And, and I'm guilty. I'm sure that when I was a kid that I probably made fun of another kid. You know, I, I probably did. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand the hurt that I could have been causing to another individual. 
I, and I'm not saying this, <laughs> I'm saying this uh, with sincerity. I don't remember doing it uh, often or severely, but it was, I do remember, you know, it's kind of a gang mentality, right? Everybody's doing it, and it seems like it's the fun thing to do, and, and, and maybe there's a kid or there's someone at school, and maybe there's something about them physically, uh, that you know, people make fun of, and everyone kind of jumps on board. Uh, but it, 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 to me, it was—it's an illustration of how easy it is to sometimes let human nature take its course in us, let human nature rule our perceptions. You know, if someone gets on a bus. We don't probably many of us don't drive or ride buses. We live in Tulsa. Maybe you do. Or a taxi cab, maybe a, well, Uber is different because I think you, you, you Uber just yourself or you're the group you're with. But you're in public and maybe there's someone you perceive as different or looks different or as a different nationality or of a different race. And you're like, in your head thinking, I hope they don't come sit close to me. Maybe we haven't had those, but things like that. Who are the Samaritans and tax collectors in our own personal lives? And going back to that idea of the Shekinah glory that Jesus now represents. That Shekinah, the glory of God that now has come through and now is manifested via the Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That Shekinah glory is revealed through us. We are now, and I'm saying that, not of us, but Christ died. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. And He lives in us now via the Holy Spirit. And we walking on this earth is how people can get a glimpse of that Shekinah glory. I don't mean that because it means anything of us. Of course it doesn't. It's nothing of our own power. Or we're not better, but Christ living through us. That they look at us and see God's light. We're called the light of the world and Christ is also called the light of the world. I've used this analogy before, but like the sun, it's a reflection on the moon. We're like the lower lights. We're like the dimmer light, reflecting the greater light, which is Jesus Christ. Let's go to the second main point. Set your eyes on God's royal law and live by it. If you really... Fulfill the royal law. I'm going to reread, sorry, I'm going to reread James 2, verses 8 through 13. James 2, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you, become, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Set your eyes on God's royal law and live by it. And you might be asking yourself, what does he mean, the royal law? Royal law. Royal law is an imperial edict which has higher, which was higher than the justice system of the aristocracy. 
And the royal law that James is referring to is the law that was given by our king. It's royal because it was a king that delivered it to us. It was a king that delivered it to us. In this context, Christians and Jews both had two sets of laws. We have two sets of laws as well. You have the law of the land and God's royal law. The law of the land and God's eternal royal law. Apparently, some of those in whom James had in mind, though, in their minds, they thought to themselves, we're pretty good. You know, we keep the law. We do those things that James mentioned. We don't commit adultery. You know, we don't steal. We don't do these things. They thought very highly of their conduct despite their neglect of the spirit of the law, their love for their fellow man by showing partiality. In fact, verse 4, very interesting. Not 100% saying that this is the appropriate interpretation, but it's a possibility. Verse 4 in the King James Version, New King James, Reads, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In the Greek, it's possible. It's possible that this phrase could be also translated, are you not divided in yourselves? Meaning, indicating the divided nature within those he is speaking to who are showing favoritism. The divided nature in the sense of, on one hand, you're saying that you have allegiance to God. You have allegiance to the Lord, our Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. But, you act differently. And so in your mind, you keep the law, you do these things, but in this one little area, yeah, I do show favoritism, but that's okay, because I do everything else. At the heart of the entire law is one thing, and that is love. You know, it's unfortunate that people look at the Old Testament and they say to themselves, oh, that law, that bondage. And you know, thank, thank God that Christ nailed that to the cross. It's unfortunate because the entire time it's been a demonstration, a, guide, a, guide, a guiding path to the love of God. James says in verse 8, according to Scripture. So we have to ask the question, what Scripture? That Scripture that he's actually talking about is a reference to Leviticus, the 19th chapter, verse 18. Where we read in Leviticus 19, verse 18, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We see the same thing happen. When Jesus, and we've already read it from, from Luke, Luke 10, but Jesus also mentions this in Luke, the 22nd chapter, when an expert on the law comes to Jesus, tries to trip him up, and asks Jesus what the greatest commandment was, and Jesus responds in Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets. Jesus here is affirming, and James is getting at it, that the whole law points to this singular idea, and that idea is love of God and love of man. You cannot steal from someone and still claim that you love them because you didn't murder them. 
because it violates the whole intent of the entire law. This is why James says in verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all, because it has a singular purpose, and that is love of God and love of man. And obviously, when we read the Ten Commandments, we see that that is a summary of the Ten Commandments, right? Those are very important laws. I'm not, I'm not saying that love is all you, I mean, obviously, we have to have some definitions of what love is and some, you know, obviously, the, the, the idea is that it will manifest itself in us keeping God's law, his law that he's written out. But we know that the basis of the law is love of God and love of man. Let's go to Matthew, the 19th chapter. Almost done here. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, this is the rich man. I'm going to read verse 16 through 22. We've read this before. A rich man comes to Jesus, and he asks him another question. And that question, what do I do for eternal life? And he says in verse 16, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now obviously, this isn't an indictment necessarily, a person who has wealth. This isn't saying that people who are wealthy can't have eternal life or can't follow Christ. But it seems from the context that this man, despite keeping all of the commandments had a hang-up on that first one, having no other gods but me. It seems like he was hung up on wealth. He was so sorrowful that he had to give this up. And it almost indicates from the context that this man's problem was that his wealth was more important to him, inner, deep down, more important to him than God himself. That wealth had become a false idol or false god. And that he lacked in his love towards God by giving God his total allegiance, total devotion, and completely and fully relying upon God. One more little passage here, which we've all read. Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 17 through 20. We've read this many times. Matthew, the fifth chapter. This is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had just went through the, the Beatitudes, the Blesseds. And Matthew 5 Verse 17, he says, Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle by no means will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What's interesting about this is if we think about it, the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were very religious. They were looked at as the top religious groups. And Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. There's two things at play here. Number one, they were. They were very strict to the letter of the law. But many of them used the letter of the law and neglected the spiritual intent of the law. And that wasn't good enough for Jesus because it's not, it's not creating the transformation that Jesus expects from us. You can keep the law as literal as you want. And we should keep the law. The law is good. But what God desires is a spiritual transformation where that law is written into our nature, into our hearts, into our minds. And it's not a matter of having to walk around and rehearse, well, do I do this? Do I, you know, okay, I do this at three, I do this at four, I do this at five. This ritual's tomorrow. That's unsustainable. And it's not transforming the person. And so we see this same thing here where people... In Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, where they would maybe neglect that spiritual side, but they would think, hey, look how strict we are. Of course, we're the last that will probably be condemned. Because look what all we do. And it's a relation to what James's audience, because it seemed like they were doing the same thing. Because he had to address, if you really want to keep the royal law, indicating that those people he's talking to probably thought they were keeping the law really well, but if you stumble in one part, which you are, you're neglecting the part of not loving your fellow man like you should and perceiving them as Jesus would, taking in the people that our culture says or has disdain for, that's what we see Jesus do. And he goes on from here to magnify that law by showing that it's the inner intent, it's the heart where love truly is born out. Lust is idolatry, or uh, excuse me, adultery, anger, with a brother is murder. It's not just the physical, it's the spiritual, where it begins. And so in closing, let's just think about those two points. Okay? Treating and perceiving people as God, as Christ, as the Lord of glory, the one in which the Shekinah glory came into and the world beheld the glory of God through the Son, and now the Son and God the Father through the Holy Spirit is in us. And so if that's the case, our perceptions, our nature should be being transformed into the nature and perceptions of God. And the royal law. The royal law. Think about what that means. The basis of the law, which is love. The intent of the law. Keep it in its full spiritual intent. And remember, these things... As we, go out through our, as we go out through our week, as we come across people, as we see maybe people getting favoritism shown to them or you know, partiality shown, you know, in a negative way, think about those things. Think about Jesus and how he treated people very differently than the culture taught people to treat people.